When computer scientist Andreas Antonopoulos first heard about Bitcoin in 2011, he dismissed it as nerd money. Six months later, he happened on Bitcoin creator Satoshi Nakamoto's now legendary white paper, written in November 2008. His nine-page, dryly written document unrolled a blueprint for a system that replaced financial institutions with a globally distributed encryption-based transaction network that wasn't owned by anyone. After reading that white paper, Antonopoulos' mind was blown. This isn't money, he realized. It's a decentralized trust network with applications extending far beyond digital currency. Antonopoulos said he became obsessed and enthralled with Bitcoin, spending 12 or more hours each day glued to a screen, reading, writing, coding, and learning as much as he could. He said, I emerged from the state of fugue more than 20 pounds lighter from a lack of consistent meals, determined to dedicate myself to working on Bitcoin. Five years later, Antonopoulos' work has paid off. The 43-year-old entrepreneur is one of the most respected experts in Bitcoin and blockchain technology, and he regularly shares his expertise with businesses and organizations around the world. His 2014 book, Mastering Bitcoin, was called The Best Technical Reference Available on Bitcoin Today by Balaji Srinivasan, the CEO of 21.co. And it has received high praise from Gavin Andreessen, chief scientist of the Bitcoin Foundation. My name is Mark Fraunfelder. I'm a research affiliate at Institute for the Future, a nonprofit think tank that helps organizations and the public think systematically about the future in order to make better decisions in the present. In January 2016, IFTF launched the Blockchain Futures Lab, a research initiative and a community for identifying the opportunities and limits of blockchain technologies and their social, economic, and political impacts on individuals, organizations, and communities over the coming decades. I spoke to Antonopoulos to get his thoughts on the current state of blockchain technology and where it's headed. What he had to say was surprising and enlightening. Hey, Andreas, can you talk about private blockchains or enterprise blockchain technology and how it differs from Bitcoin's blockchain? Well, it's, it's, um, first of all, I, I think we've seen this before. Um, and it's very similar to the earliest stages of the consumer internet when, when the internet was just about breaking out of the educational environment, uh, after the, what was it, 1993 National Science Foundation decision to open it up to commercial use. And, um, you know, at the time you had uh, people doing things like writing manifestos for the internet, right? Um, about, um, you know, uh, what was his name? Bruce Perry Barlow writing, um, you know, Declaration of Independence. And... And so the corporations uh, were really uh, kind of excited about this technology. They could see this is going to be disruptive, and they certainly wanted to at least defensively prepare themselves for it. I, the same narrative is playing out with Bitcoin. Um, and so what they did then was try to create other networks with TCPIP or um, intranets or various things like MSN and CompuServe to to create kind of closed curated wall garden versions of the internet where everything would be tame and pg-13 and um you know all the promise of the internet none of the smut uh <laughs> right not not none of the offensive anything just kind of a clean disney-fied version of it 
Um, and and of course, you know, those places failed because they were boring and because the 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 real premise of the internet wasn't TCP/IP, it wasn't interconnectivity, it was um, it was openness, it was permissionless innovation, um, it was content creators being individuals rather than top down. It was peer to peer, and and all of those things exploded. Uh, with innovation until eventually everything else just seemed boring and and became obsolete. Well, same thing is happening now with Bitcoin. Um, B- Bitcoin is is finance without borders, uh, finance without identity, finance for everyone, finance without banks and governments, fi- finance without authority, uh, central points of control, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. Um, you know, we we've basically we we present Bitcoin to the world as open, decentralized, permissionless innovation, peer-to-peer fin- finance without borders, and the and the banks and the corporations say, oh, that's that's awesome. We we want that. Only um, without the open, decentralized, uh, peer-to-peer, uh, borderless, permissionless part, could we instead have a closed, controlled, uh, tame? identity-laden, permissioned version of that, please. And, and the blockchain, which we promoted kind of, you know, hey, listen, it's, it's not just about Bitcoin. This was two years ago we started talking. A lot of people who are in Bitcoin started saying, you know, it's not about Bitcoin alone. You have to understand, because people thought Bitcoin currency, right? And, and the argument was it's not about the currency. It's about this um, trust network as a platform, as a global platform, and what it can do. Uh, and so we started saying, you know, pay attention to the blockchain, not just Bitcoin. The banks took this all the way to the end, and now they're saying blockchain without Bitcoin. Um, and even this this faddish kind of uh, through 2015, you had this fad transformation where it became very cool and popular to say, you know, after all, Bitcoin. It's not about Bitcoin. It's about the blockchain instead of Bitcoin. Um, and Bitcoin is going to fail, but blockchain is going to change the world. Um, and, and that's kind of like the great whitewashing. <laughs> um, and it's, it's hilarious to watch because, for one thing, it, it, it betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of what this is, where the value is, and how it works. And do you think these enterprise blockchains will be successful? Well, I mean, they are going to be successful. They're going to be successful in replacing even more insidious forms of centralization like centralized clearinghouses, uh, like SWIFT and uh, Deposited Trust and Clearing Corporation, BRICS and other uh, you know, pri- quasi-private monopoly companies that, that control and clear equities and bonds and commodities. Um, so they're going to revolutionize Wall Street's trading floor. Well, revolutionize meaning they'll drag it out of the 70s and maybe bring it into the late 90s. Um, and and that may be exciting to bankers. Um, it it gives me a, a major yawn. So but so let's let's start with the technical. Um, the really cool thing is the open decentralized blockchain. That is a blockchain that has no central authority and is open for anyone to participate without asking permission because the trust mechanism doesn't depend on access control like everything that came before. It depends on uh, proof-of-work consensus, which is this decentralized approach to uh, achieving consensus and trust over the state of the system. But you can only have that if you have 
uh, a consensus algorithm that is decentralized and anonymous, such as proof of work mining in Bitcoin. And we haven't found another good enough one yet. Um, and that only works if you have a reward associated with mining um, to create this game theoretical competition and, and balance between the incentives for private profit and trust in the system. And, and we, we know that works. It works very well and it's scaled so far to double digit billion dollars, which had never happened before. And that in itself is astonishing. So the idea that you could make a blockchain without Bitcoin or without a currency, well, you can really, but the only way to do that is to replace the decentralized consensus mechanism with a kind of a committee, uh, which is what they call signing instead of mining. So you get 10 banks together and instead of mining blocks competitively in an open way, they, they sign the blocks, they take turns. Um, there's an algorithm for that called Byzantine Paxos, which is a distributed consensus algorithm. It's basically what we used to call three-phase commit. It's like a round-robin signing party where you elect a leader each round and they sign for all of the transactions. And as long as you trust that nine banks are better than one central clearinghouse and won't cheat as much, then okay. But that system is not, um, first of all, it's not immutable. Uh, the banks can get together and roll back the blockchain and write something else. The Bitcoin's proof of work, you can't do that. No one can do that because you can't get enough miners to put enormous amounts of hashing power behind that kind of effort. So you lose immutability. Um, you lose decentralization. Because the model is based on this round robin of trusted partners, you lose the permissionless open access. So it becomes uh, something where you have to have permission to join. It almost certainly isn't open and public. And it will almost certainly have to have ID added back into it, uh, which brings all of the disadvantages of identity theft if you're a consumer. And, and will give us an absolute treasure trove if you're WikiLeaks. Because imagine what happens when Lockheed Martin's blockchain leaks. Um, you're going to have a timestamp record of every financial transaction they've ever done. I can't wait. Um, so, so they're adding identity back to this, which is absolutely idiotic. But anyway, so, so you can have a blockchain without a currency. You just can't have an open, decentralized uh, blockchain where the trust lies in this game-theoretical competition that is neutral and based on rules. And instead, you have to put trust in third parties, counterparties who are the signers. And, and that then becomes the same business as usual, um, which may be revolutionary for banks, but um, immediately it cannot be borderless because in order to maintain control over a system like that, you have to control uh, identity. And that means uh, you have the old Bank Secrecy Act, know your customer rules and anti-money laundering rules, which in themselves are responsible for this problem of global economic exclusion, the reason people can't participate in the banking system. So you re-erect the borders. Essentially what it is is an intranet. And an intranet is boring. It's stale content. It's the less secure version 
of everything out there. It's you can't run the apps you want because corporate IT didn't allow them. It's uh, stagnant innovation. And in the end, it also lags behind in terms of security because it's not exposed to the kind of robust peer review that an open internet-based system has to have to survive. So while Bitcoin's getting stronger and stronger with security, um, these things will actually wither. Uh, I did a presentation uh, called Bubble Boy and the Sewer Rat about that very topic. The, the idea being that, you know, just like intranets, uh, end up being these really insecure places where you're running Outlook and front page and um, you know uh, old versions of Apache that haven't been patched. Whereas on the internet, if you're Facebook, if you're Google, if you're Apple, and you're operating internet applications, you have to be robust. You have to respond to vulnerabilities. You have to make systems that are anti-fragile, uh, resilient to attack, and they're constantly evolving, and they become very robust. Whereas the things that you put in a bubble, like Bubble Boy, uh, if you remember from the 70s, the uh, kids who lived in a bubble because he had an immune system, it's like raising a child uh, in a bath of Purell, and you're going to turn it into an allergic weakling. Um, and in, in meantime, Bitcoin isn't living in a bubble. Bitcoin is a sewer rat. It's it's missing a leg. Its snout has, was badly mangled in an accident in, in last year. but it, it, and, and it's not allergic to anything. In fact, it's probably got a couple of strains of bubonic plague on it, which it treats like the common cold. Um, so it, it, you, you have this system that is anti-fragile and dynamic and robust. So this is the big argument of 2015. It's the um, it's the let's take Bitcoin, cut off its its beard, um, take away its piercings, put it in a suit, and call it blockchain. Present it to the board, and it's it's safe. It's got borders. We can apply the same regulations. We can put barriers to entry and create anti-competitive environments. Control who has access, and it will be more efficient than our existing banking system. Um, and you know, if 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 what they want to do is the outlook of currencies, go ahead by all means. <laughs> you know, that's what intranets turn into, right? It's um, stale wiki content hosted on front page and outlook, and it's it's uh, you know people hate that, and uh, eventually. Successful, vibrant, innovative companies are the ones that turn their IT infrastructure inside out. And in the future of finance, successful, vibrant, um, and innovative banks are the ones that turn their infrastructure inside out and make it part of an open, borderless financial system that serves the other six billion, that serves all of the people who have been excluded from finance. Um, because here's the thing, we've had the internet now for 25 years, and if you look at the statistics, financial inclusion is getting worse, and that doesn't make any sense, unless you consider that in the meantime, uh, the traditional currencies and digital finance systems have been uh, getting more and more prone to surveillance and tied to identity where everything is tracked. And they're closing in on themselves in order to maintain this ironclad control over who sends money to whom, uh, all in the name of terrorist prevention and anti-money laundering, which is bullshit because you know HSBC can money launder billions, always have since their birth in the opium wars, and nobody ever goes to jail. But you know, God forbid, a kid buys a joint with Bitcoin, and everybody's up in arms. Um, 
Right, but what is this doing in the meantime? So the real question is, how many billions of people are you going to sacrifice on the altar of money laundering? Because the current answer is just a bit over 4 billion people. So 4 billion people who are in the deepest parts of uh, poverty um, are excluded from banking and financial systems. And it is because of know your customer and anti-money laundering and borders and controlled networks. You cannot create global finance and economic inclusion on the back of a, of a carefully controlled uh, show us your papers identity based system where everything is tracked. What you create is a, a global surveillance dystopia. So our entire financial system is heading into this um, thing where everything is surveilled. Um, and, and Bitcoin is heading in the exact opposite direction. No identity by default. Um, uh, from weak pseudonymity to stronger and stronger anonymity as time goes by. Um, and as a result, it doesn't do borders. It doesn't care about borders. It doesn't do know your customer. It doesn't do anti-money laundering. It doesn't do those things because those things are bourgeois concepts of the privileged financial elite. Um, and those bourgeois concepts have a four billion people in poverty price tag. Uh, Andres, w would it be fair to say that what the the banks and financial institutions are are trying to do is like centralize the the blockchain? Oh, absolutely. Well, well, well it's not so much centralize the blockchain. Is that they're starting with a premise that um, finance must be controlled in order to be secure. Um, in order to be controlled and secure, it has to have identity. In order to have identity, you have to control all the endpoints and it has to be a closed system. And in order for it to be a closed system, you have to control access and centralize everything as much as possible. Uh, you want end-to-end -end control. You can't have leaks because the leaks are the places where money laundering happens. Um, well, money laundering for poor brown people, not money laundering for you know rich white people. We don't care about that. Um, so, so the the end result is that um, they're making the system more and more centralized in this desperate attempt to fulfill a dream that started in the seventies that you could create this this perfect Disneyfied world economy where. Um, everybody's finances are known, and you know when they talk about know your customer and anti-money laundering rules, they assume that the information all flows in one direction to them. <laughs> they don't assume that you know um, the CIA's uh, money laundering for weapons purchases are seen by the Chinese. They assume what that means is that the Syrian um, the dissidents' money is known by the CIA. It's only one-way flow. Anyway. Um, not to get too political, but the point is that money has been heading away from cash and towards digital, and with that digital came an attempt to turn it all into a giant mainframe, highly centralized. But the problem is that within the central centralized systems are, of course, corruptible. Uh, centralization of power corrupts absolutely. Uh, it creates fragility. And so in this march to centralization for reasons of control, um, which is taken for granted among these circles. The end results have been fragile markets, um, fragile economies, fragile currencies, and increasingly corruption. So um, the the companies that have control of a clearing of equities front run the transactions of their friends and delay the transactions of the ones they're competing with, right? Um, and 
so you have all of these rigged markets where privileged access is is the name of the game and so what the banks want is they want it a hell of a lot more centralized and controlled than Bitcoin, and they certainly don't want this ragtag army of misfits to suddenly create competition where they had this nicely parceled up monopolistic market. But they don't want it as controlled as the, as the one clearinghouse. So for them, a blockchain is this great liberalization. It's decentralizing their clearinghouses. Um, but but that's because their definition of the scale of centralization is very narrow. Um, for for me, uh, Bitcoin, a a a true global currency with liquidity, it, that is completely decentralized, is is not even at the edge of the scale. Um, you know, there are far more decentralized, stealthy, and anonymous currencies uh, further off to the side of Bitcoin and. Um, but this one has promise, it has momentum, it has brand recognition, and it has the potential to scale to, to reach all of those people who are left behind. So yeah, that's, that's the whole narrative of 2015. There are about 2 billion unbanked people in the world. And so why haven't they adopted Bitcoin faster than, than they have? Well, they don't have access. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. Uh, we're in year seven. This is... The, uh, to, to me, so Bitcoin just had its seventh birthday on January 3rd. Um, and it spent the first three years in obscurity. So you've had really four years since it's been known among the tech elite, maybe two years since it's become a news item. Um, we're very much where the internet was in 1992. So the question is, if you ask me in 1992, why isn't social media happening? Why isn't China picking up the internet? Why isn't the average person... Um, you know, is, is why aren't we seeing popular revolutions starting <laughs> based on this wonderful communication platform? You said it would bring freedom to the world. Where is it? If you said that in 1992, you'd be right. It's not there. That's where we are. Um, the technology is still immature. Um, we've barely had decent um, smartphone wallets for uh, a year and a half now. Um, liquidity on the ground, we're talking about six or seven billion dollars total liquidity in the market, which is not enough to support even the remittances flow, uh, which is a huge market. Um, and and we, we are seeing little pockets of adoption. There's some really exciting things happening in the Philippines, for example, with uh, rebit.ph. Um, and there, there's certainly a lot of attention in China, especially now with the yuan devaluing, where Bitcoin is being used as a safe haven, um, safety valve flight from capital. But it's naive to assume that a technology that is so new is suddenly going to take spark in and around the world where... Um, you know, data plans are barely there, um, smartphones are barely there. We are seeing some efforts to bring it to feature phones, to use SMS, intermediaries, but that brings its own risks because it makes it more centralized and um, possible to defraud and, and um, you know, steal Bitcoin from people. So that's not a good idea either. It, it's not going to have a big, uh, a big impact in the third world for a decade. Um, that's, that's the truth. Is You're going to see pockets. 
Um, for example, we're seeing among the digitarati of Argentina who are in that perfect set of circumstances where they've got the technology infrastructure, they understand the speak English, literacy, numeracy, tech, tech savvy, young people, entrepreneurs, and they've got a massive currency crisis, currency controls, um, hyperinflation, and no ability to do any import export business. Well, there's a small um, kind of island of Bitcoin activity going on that was grown out of that inefficiency. You have these areas where the the circumstances of finance become uh, high enough friction that you see these little islands of of Bitcoin activity emerge. But it's still really really early days. And and to ask why there's no Bitcoin in the third world today is to ask why there was no Netflix on on the internet in 1994-95. Can you talk about how the blockchain is going to be able to enable things like creating records of ownership that are easy to transfer? Establishing permanent identity records online, creating voting systems that are transparent, self-executing contracts, things like that. I, I think all of those things and and many more applications that are not simply extensions of what we have today, just decentralized, um, are in our future. The uh, and and are possible by by technologies related to this kind of decentralized model of trust. So if you think of it simply as a decentralized trust platform that can securely record in an immutable ledger certain facts, um, whether those are about ownership of a currency or an asset or something else, um, and the, 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 then all of these things are in our future. But the, the question is, when do they happen and in what sequence do they happen? And, and which of these are simply skeuomorphic design of what we think we're going to need based on what we had before? And which ones are really innovative? Like, for example, I, I see all of this emphasis on reputation um, among people who are interested in Bitcoin. And to me, reputation and identity are really proxies to trust and default risk. And they're very poor proxies as such. Um, and they're a leftover of old world thinking. Um, I think we can do a lot more things with anonymity, pseudonymity, um, and diversification of risk without identity, which is far more interesting to me than trying to create some kind of straitjacket identity system on Bitcoin. Um, in terms of voting, you know, the real question is, what problem are you trying to solve? Which is often the case when geeks come into politics. Uh, what problem are you trying to solve with voting? Um, verifying the integrity of the vote? We don't really have a voting fraud problem, at least not in the United States. Uh, there's some fiction among some parties that there is a voting fraud. There's some vote registration fraud that doesn't actually translate into voting fraud. What we have is enormous apathy and a complete capture through campaign finance by the one percent, and you don't say you don't solve that by doing digital voting. Uh, in fact, probably pencil and paper is the most secure system you can yet come up with, with sufficient checks and balances. So again, um, a lot of the thinking around blockchain, I think, is still influenced by what were the problems we were trying to solve last decade. And can we stick blockchain or Bitcoin on top of that and solve them? And not really thinking about what can we do completely differently with these technologies. Um, but 
really, if you start thinking of Bitcoin not as a currency, but as a trust platform, one that provides you with a scriptable environment where you can combine conditions that get evaluated neutrally by a network-centric system of trust, uh, I mean, it's an enormously powerful idea. Uh, and uh, it, you can do all kinds of decentralized things with it that we haven't yet imagined beyond currency. Is it possible to have these decentralized trust platforms doing these cool things without mining or some kind of proof of work? Well, n not really. Um, we don't know yet. Maybe there's a better consensus algorithm. But in terms of what does mining buy you? It doesn't buy you efficiency. What it buys you is freedom. Uh, in fact, you get freedom at the cost of efficiency. And so the most efficient system you can build for a database is a completely centralized system. Very, very efficient. It can process billions of transactions per second, um, as long as you give all of the authority and trust to a single party. What Bitcoin does is it says we diversify that control and trust among a very large number of participants or systems. In, and then we, we allow them to exert that authority without identifying themselves in a very decentralized way. That prevents corruption and it means that you can't coerce anyone because you don't even know who they are. And um, it decentralizes the trust mechanism. We, we don't know of a better way of doing that. Uh, maybe there is a better way of doing that. Consensus algorithms are a new area of science that is arguably about four years old. Practically in universities, we're seeing it about two years now, uh, beginning to develop as an area of study with research. But um, it's not easy to do without a currency. It's not easy to do without mining. There's a lot of news about the way that the mining pool is continuing to become centralized in a way. There aren't really that many players in mining. Is that something to be concerned about? Is there anything that can be done about it? Well, yeah, a, a lot of things are, are, are changing in that, in that way. Um, so first of all, there's, there's the concept of a mining pool, which is a specific technical construct, which is a way of coordinating activity between um, a group of miners in order to smooth out the allocation of rewards. So it's kind of like a lottery pool. Um, where you join with many others so that you get smaller but more frequent wins that, that give you a more steady stream of income rather than saying, okay, I'm going to win once every six months, but it's going to be big enough, right? Um, you don't want to do that on a Poisson distribution because what if you win every nine months? <laughs> Who's going to pay the electricity bill, right? So th that's the problem mining pools attempt to solve. There are really about a dozen mining pools of which three are very powerful and they have behind them you know, probably a hundred companies that run mining servers, uh, mining farms, and, and of those, there are probably only half a dozen that have an enormous amount of hash rate. That, that is a problem. But at the same time, that is an artifact of, of a very specific adoption curve, which is that when, when Bitcoin started, mining was happening on CPU. Uh, it migrated from CPU to GPU to FPGA and to application-specific circuit over the first five years. Um, in the last two years, it's been exclusively 
uh, application-specific integrated circuits, which means that people are putting the mining algorithm in parallel on uh, silicon directly in silicon fabrication. They were doing it at first at 28 nanometers, then at 24, then at 22. The latest one that came out is at 16 nanometers. What does that mean? 16 nanometers of silicon fabrication. That's the density of... The chip, yes. The transistors? Right. So 16 nanometers is what commercial uh, CPU and GPU is at, right? So basically, Bitcoin mining has gone from something that was a hobbyist thing to increasingly specialized silicon chips being manufactured by the hundreds of thousands, where if you had 10 million to get into the game, 10 million US dollars, you could go out and buy these in bulk, have a, a semiconductor fab, manufacture them on demand, uh, create your own designs, and that arms race lasted for about two years. But at the end of this arms race is a Moore's law, right? At the end of this arms race is a wall that everyone has now hit. Um, and there simply isn't anything beyond 16 nanometers. Uh, so you've got 100x improvements in mining capacity and power uh, every maybe at least 100x a year, sometimes 1,000x a year. Uh, and now we're back to Moore's Law, which means 2x every 18 months, right? That's a wall. And what happens when you hit that wall is it no longer matters how many uh, transistors you put on a chip, because you're already maximizing it, or even how much performance you get out of each watt of electricity. What matters is how many chips you have uh, and how densely you can pack them which actually shifts the game. I have a little computer here, which is a, built by a company called 21 Inc., which was a big startup in this space. Uh, they're trying to consumerize mining by putting the latest cutting-edge chip in a little device, which I run at a small loss, but I use it to do other things. If you distribute 100,000 of these, mining as a centralized occupation is over. And, and people don't realize that because the miners don't have any economy of scale advantage over uh, consumers. Uh, if, if there is reason to run this, and, and there's even more reason in, in places in the world where a, a, a tiny income from a solar panel might actually make a difference, a tiny income in an internationally recognized currency from a solar panel you put on your hut, I mean, um, essentially this whole equation could flip on its head and suddenly mining could become immensely decentralized as it always was intended to be. So this game has not played out yet, and a lot of people who are looking at this curve and extrapolating it up and to the right don't realize that we're at the end of the curve already because we hit 16 nanometers and there, aren't, there, there ain't more capacity in the silicon chip to do anything more. And, and now it's about volume, and volume is done by companies like Samsung and Qualcomm, and they um, do things for consumers, and uh, it's a matter of distribution. So, so the game has changed dramatically. Um, you can't corner the market in mining anymore. Now, the, the market itself, of course, is probably a year behind. It hits that curve because that's how long it takes to source and deploy, et cetera. Um, maybe two before you start seeing consumers uh, getting big. Uh, but it's happening. One of the things that I've not been able to understand is what happens when the rewards from mining go away. What's the incentive then? So um, at the moment, the rewards are 25 Bitcoin. Well, the short answer is fees, transaction fees. 
Um, at the moment, with a thousand fees, per, uh, sorry, a thousand transactions per block, just ballpark, um, twenty-five Bitcoin in reward from seniorage, from co new coinage, um, and about maybe 0.1 Bitcoin in total fees. Uh, if you have a thousand transactions, you're going to make 0.1 Bitcoin. If you look at blocks using blockexplorer.com or one of these sites, and you look at the first transaction you're going to see as a reward to the miner, you're going to notice it's an amount that looks like 25.11357. Of that, 25 is the new Bitcoin, and the .11357 is fees. Okay, now think of the reward as a declining curve that that halves every four years, and the transactions per block increasing with adoption, the value of each Bitcoin increasing with adoption, and the amount of fees remaining more or less steady, or in in a dollar perspective. If today it's two hundred and fifty to one, two hundred and fifty times new coin reward versus one uh, fees. Um, at the end of the curve, you might have a relationship where it's one to ten thousand. So you get one satoshi from reward to mine a block with ten thousand transactions, all of which have a minimum fee of one satoshi. So that's ten thousand satoshis reward, one satoshi from new coins, ten thousand from fees. So you've gone from two fifty to one to ten thousand to one. Uh, so one to ten thousand inverse relationship and now all of the reward almost is from fees and those two curves cross over at some point long before you reach the end and so this is intentional it's designed to basically gradually wean miners off rewards when they're subsidizing the network until there's enough transaction volume that even with a low fee per transaction um the the job of securing the network through mining is rewarded by the transaction fee itself. Mining never stops. Mining never stops. However, there is a fixed cost for electricity. What you're depending on then, if those mining fees are going to be an incentive, is that you have to assume that the value of Bitcoin is going to increase a lot, right? Well, not necessarily. Yes, it, it will increase a lot because um, if you... Just in general, if you think 21 million bitcoins is your primary monetary supply, what in economics terms would be called M0, um, in the U.S. economy, for example, M0 is about 5 to 8%. So 5 to 8% of our currency circulates as actual coin. Um, and then you have various derivative instruments. Um, that increase the velocity of money, so fractional reserve lending and and various other things, so that each unit of currency travels through multiple hands and ends up creating a much much bigger economy. E even if you consider twenty one million at as M zero, um, if if Bitcoin's economy was a trillion dollars, uh, yes, you're looking at a significant increase in value. But here's the other thing: mining is not uh, very profitable uh, in the long run. Uh, in fact, there's a dynamically adjusted equation within mining that ensures that the more people try, the harder it gets. Um, but that equation also works backwards, which means that if it's no longer profitable at the current level of effort, uh, miners drop out 
And as fewer people are trying, the difficulty decreases to recalibrate the system. So there's no reason why you, if the price isn't justifying the current level of mining, what happens is um, the current level of mining will decline, and the first ones to switch off are going to be the locations that have the the lowest efficiency in converting watts to Bitcoin, um, and the highest cost of electricity, which naturally pushes mining to places where you have low cost electricity, renewables, um, free electricity like solar, um, and it pushes to the most efficient um, operations and chips possible. Um, naturally, everybody else is unprofitable. Everybody else is unprofitable most of the time in this space. So as I understand it, there's a, a limit on how many transactions the Bitcoin system can process. It's like seven transactions per second globally. There are ways to change that, like increasing the size of, of a block. What are your thoughts about that? And are we ever going to see Bitcoin have the same number of transactions per second as something like Visa, which I know uh, or I've read can do something like 10,000 transactions per second? Uh, people have already simulated Bitcoin um, with the constraints Bitcoin has, but with various things scaled up as able to substantially approach uh, Visa's Christmas Eve capacity, which is their busiest day of the year. Um, and it, it's unlikely that for, for many reasons that you would want to make Bitcoin as efficient as Visa. And part of the reason is that that comes at a cost of centralization. Um, and one of the things we're trying to make sure in Bitcoin is that we maintain this balance, which is we're paying an efficiency price uh, in order to maintain the neutrality of the network, the decentralization of the trust. Um, and so that compromise is always going to lead to something less efficient than, than, than Visa. You know, all you have to do with Visa is give up all your political freedoms and give them complete control of the economy and they'll deliver as many transactions per second as you want. But just make sure those transactions aren't going to WikiLeaks because they got pressured by the US government to cut them off. And by the way, that incident is one of the things that motivated a lot of people to, to look into Bitcoin. And is why WikiLeaks has its primary funding through Bitcoin. But I digress. Um, there's no reason why you can't scale Bitcoin substantially, several orders of magnitude. And in fact, we're we're already seeing multiple proposals and different ways of doing so. Um, the seven transaction per second uh, scalability limit uh, is primarily an anti-denial of service requirement at the moment, uh, and it's in place because. Uh, there isn't the demand to put more transactions that's, and, unless you're doing free transactions, in which case a lot of them are really spam, right? So um, zero fee is not necessarily a good thing because it encourages um, network antisocial behavior. Um, so anyway, uh, yes, Bitcoin can scale. Uh, what is most likely to happen is that in, in some ways, Bitcoin is, is more likely to be the, the reserve currency and clearing system for uh, a, an ecosystem, a jungle of other species of currencies that have different velocities and are more in tune for things like retail banking and, and, or retail debanking, um, uh, buying a cup of coffee, etc., Bitcoin will serve that purpose too. 
but it may end up you have more specialized coins. The, the idea that you have to have one coin that wins is not necessarily true anymore. I think what Bitcoin should be, um, and I think what we're trying to do, is make it the globally super robust, super trusted, absolutely immutable global record of trust that acts as a clearing and settlement layer. Um, and it will be able to do some payments efficiently. And for really, really tiny micropayments, you're going to use other technologies in parallel. Think of it as the very, very thick uh, trunk of the digital currency tree. And some things you want to do on the tiny, tiny little wispy branch at the end, um, because the trunk isn't flexible enough. But the trunk is what holds it all together. What is it that prevents someone from creating millions of bots that flood the network by just sending one Satoshi to each other and cause the, the whole system to grind to a halt? Well, there's a very simple answer. Um, what's stopping that from happening is that it happened. Um, and then it was stopped. And then some other variant happened, and then it was stopped again. And then some other variant happened, and it stopped again and again and again and again through seven years of grueling denial-of-service robustness training of this infant currency's immune system. This is not a bubble currency. This is a sewer rat. It's been fighting in the shit for seven years, and it has had everything thrown at it. So, yes, that happened. And, in fact, that happened in year two. So some denial-of-service measures were taken, and then those were attacked, and then they got more robust and more robust and more robust and more robust. So it's akin to the question of why in 2016 does Google not get taken down with denial-of-service when in 1999 Google was taken down for a day by denial-of-service? And the answer is not because denial-of-service is not happening, but because it has been happening nonstop since the beginning, and the system has become anti-fragile and immune to it. So Bitcoin will go down from time to time in minor service disruptions, um, and but it keeps getting stronger because it's constantly under attack. Uh, at the moment, there are various limits. The seven transaction per second limit on total processing, the minimum uh, transaction amount, um, limits the minimum transaction that various nodes will relay, which is a choice of the node operator, um, uh, the minimum fee per kilobyte that will be processed, et cetera, et cetera, all of which um, make it difficult to do a nuisance attack without spending money and uh, keep most Bitcoin transactions in the realm of financially viable transactions as judged by the willingness of the transmitter to pay the fee per kilobyte. Uh, it's, a, it's a nice market-based system, and it, it works pretty well. What's your take on Ethereum? Well, I, I, have, um, I have some Ethereum, uh, just to, in, in case you need a disclosure. I'm involved in a lot of, uh, of this scene, but um, I've, I've studied Ethereum since the early days. Um, in fact, uh, the creator of Ethereum, Vitalik, uh, sent me the white paper before he published it for review uh, among a small group of people he sent it to. Um, and I was fascinated from the very beginning. Um, Ethereum is using the same trusted platform dynamics and proof-of-work consensus algorithm uh, to build decentralized contracts. Um, these contracts are essentially much more robust programmable scripts than money, um, than the money scripts that Bitcoin has. Um, uh, Bitcoin has a purposefully limited scripting language inside it, which is not Turing complete. 
and that was done deliberately uh, in order to make it more secure uh, in the early days. It, it's gotten more capable since, a lot more capable, and so now a lot, a lot of smart contracts you can execute directly on Bitcoin. But Ethereum is taking a very different approach. Uh, what it's looking for is uh, complete programmability of contracts. Um, essentially, it's a blockchain for cloud computing, um, trusted cloud computing, uh, with a decentralized security model. Um, and it is fascinating. It's a it's a completely different niche. It has a lot of uh, very interesting applications going for it. And one important thing to understand is it's not a competitor to Bitcoin. Um, in fact, uh, it's very synergistic with Bitcoin. The best way it works is is with Bitcoin. Bought my first Ethereum with Bitcoin. Will you know use contracts with Bitcoin? Um, and so, like many of the other currencies, it's a branch off the tree that uses Bitcoin as its trunk, um, and it just serves a slightly different purpose. Uh, we might see similar things happen, as I mentioned before, with retail payments or um, other things like that. Andreas, this has been really great. Thanks a lot for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been an honor. To learn more about Institute for the Future and the Blockchain Futures Lab, visit iftf.org. <laughs>